the way they conducted their lives. I mean, there was, there was some damage and hurt and there's some darknesses, but they combined to make so many people happy and they, they lived their lives magnificently. And, and Paul and Ringo continue to. this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Morgan Enos is a professional songwriter, journalist, essayist, and reporter currently working as a staff writer for Grammy.com. He makes music as other houses and has written for Fortune, Discogs, Jazz Times, Billboard, Title Magazine, Bandcamp Daily, Consequence, and more. Morgan's life has been influenced by the Beatles in a fascinating way. And on today's podcast, we're talking with Morgan about that, his favorite Beatles songs and albums, and the brand new remix of Revolver. Hey, Morgan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. I am not the most um, polished podcast guest, but I am very passionate and I took my vitamins and I've got my latte and I studied your questions very carefully and I think I'm ready to go. I, I took off my glasses so I don't get lost in the uh, the infinite fractals of Zoom, uh, of the uh, like staring at your own face and getting self-conscious. Um <laughs> I would just like to thank you for having me because your podcast is a light in the universe. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. So I heard you're a big Beatles fan. Um, so what was life like for you at the time when you first heard the Beatles? Can I just start with a little overture? Yeah, absolutely. My overture is that I've been thinking about this over the last few days. I think the Beatles represent the best humanity has to offer which is seems kind of funny and hyperbolic and maybe you could switch out humanity for manhood but i really think it's humanity i was just thinking over the last few days about how my late dad who i like helped me map my whole life onto them <clears throat> over time he would always talk about how they had great hair and i i think that was it went beyond they had great hairstyles or haircuts, like they just had great, like strong hair, like strong follicles. And you would always talk about how they were really light on their feet and really energetic. You see them in the, uh, what is it, the Can't Buy Me Love video where they're running around the field. And also get back much more recently when you see, um, you see John's kind of a pugilist with Paul, you know, you remember that scene where he's, he's, I mean, for guys who smoked like 800 cigarettes a day, those guys were quick and they were athletic and they they were just great physical specimens. That was always very ingrained in me. And also, I really believe this, that humor is a sign of intelligence or even the strongest signal of intelligence. Um, Brennan and I deal with people all the time where they're respected or whatever, but I'm like, Brennan, they haven't said anything funny. Have you ever heard them say anything funny? No. <laughs> and everything that came out of those guys' mouths was abjectly hilarious. Um, I was at the Revolver live event, which I definitely want to talk about, and we're we're sitting there, just a bunch of nerds, basically. I, me among the nerds, I'm one of them. Um, and 
we'd be listening to an outtake and something John would say and the distant right speaker would be so funny, so offhanded, but so cheeky and witty that like everyone would just belly laugh. Like the guy was incapable of saying something <laughs> not, fu- I mean, not everything he said was humorous in intent necessarily. I mean, he would, he would, he had all these sides to him, the, the pedantic John and preachy John and um, self-lacerating John and all that, but the humor just flowed flowed constant waterfall so that and paul too paul was was his equal um intellectually so and and you know george was hilarious too and ringo had uh maybe not the same kind of gift but other gifts that nobody in the human race shares with him so they just represent the best of us um even at their most flawed and but even their flaws humanize them and um i'm kind of into i'm i mean i come from a christian background and i have a familiarity with the bible and religion even though i'm not part of any organized religion at present and i always think about how peter was the most mentioned if i recall correctly the most mentioned apostle even though he was the most flawed and impulsive and impetuous, but they, that made you love him so much. It, he was the most relatable one in the, in the crew. And I, I, I map that onto, um, especially John. I, I just, that's, that's what the Beatles, it just to summarize, the Beatles are what I look for in people. <laughs> I think that's the long and short of it. So this is, I've also been thinking about this. Um, I don't want to go too into, the thing that everybody says where they drone on about their childhoods, because I find that's not widely relatable. Um, Every time I pick up a rock biography and it's talking about their grandmother, what they did when they were five years old, I just like, it stops me from reading the rest of the book. So I I don't want to uh, assail people in that regard, but um, I'm I'm in my dad's Honda Prelude, a white Honda Prelude, two door and listening to help. That's, that's really my first memory. And I really glommed onto the song, It's Only Love, which it, today is considered like a Z-tier Beatles song, but I still really like it because of that. It was like in the mix with Randy Newman, Simon Smith, and the Amazing Dancing Bear, and uh, the grassroots, uh, sha-la-la, let's live for today. Um, but from there, I think I think the Beatles seemed like they were for 90-year-olds. That, that was my impression as a child, that... <clears throat> all these kids in my school were into such cool, they were into Lincoln park and stuff like that stuff that was really edgy or whatever. I have another really strong memory of you had to pick a song at school and uh, like do a little poster board presentation on the song. And um, some kid did, uh, <laughs> do you remember the worship rap rock band uh, POD? Sounds familiar. <laughs> they did. We are, we are, youth of the nation. Um, some kid did that, and that seemed like the coolest thing in the universe. And then I had my poster board that my dad had had a heavy hand in of Lennon's Imagine, and I was just like, I remember being apologetic. I'm like, guys, this song is super lame. It's my dad's idea. Yeah, you know, it's all about peace and love. And I'm sorry, it was just like red in the face. Um, and then. I remember the urge to get into stuff beyond the Beatles because that was the um, it was the resting state for lack of a better word. It it was the um, 
it was omnipresent. It was just the baseline. It was the foundation. And I kind of wanted to forge my own tastes. So I would get into the craziest Beatle material I could in order to like define myself on the, you know, instead of I'm happy just to dance with you or whatever, I would, I would jam Helter Skelter or the, the, the furthest out bootleg or whatever. But then after a while, started getting into preteens. I think, I think I was able to appreciate the majesty a little more. And, and I think you develop more of a capacity for beauty around the time of life that you start getting into poetry or whatever the finer thing, history, the finer things of life. And um, within you, without you, which remains very underrated for some bizarre reason, just ravished me. Um, just that, that waterfall of, of sound, the, the union between East and West, that, that felt incredibly transportive. And I've always had a, and, and also um, Beatles for sale sort of around the time I started getting in music, you can see the guitars in the background. That's, this, this is what I did pr prior to music journalism um, and still remains secretly the thing I love to do the most. But Beatle, I, I started, as I started feeling my way around my instruments, just the simplest things about Beatles for sale, the, the weird chords, like the, uh, this, the simplicity of what you're doing. Yeah. What you're doing. That's what it's called. The, simple how a simple drum roll and the do 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 i started when you get into the replacements and the birds and alternative rock and jangle pop and rem that simplicity how you can f outline a chord with the simplest of ingredients and just great say anyway i'm going on of on a tangent but yeah this is all to say i just the, the appreciation swelled and swelled and swelled and swelled and even when I got into punk rock and metal and hip hop and all that stuff, Beatles never went away. It, it only enhanced, enhanced the appreciation. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, like there are so many different complexities and intricacies that go into the Beatles songwriting process. Like, you know, the song Within You Without You is just incredibly complex. And even It's Only Love from Help. I mean, John Lennon said he hated that song, but I think that's like one of their top 10 songs of all time. You think so? Yeah, absolutely. You think so? Yeah. I mean, the lyrics, the way he sings it, the feel of it, they, they really have a masterpiece with that song. <laughs> I think so too. I mean, you could tell, you could tell John hates it because he's rolling, he's rolling his R. Makes nighttime bright. He's, he's, he's just like white knuckling it through that song. Um, but I, I think it's got I think you're right. I haven't really thought about it um, too much, but yeah, now, now that I think about it, it's, it's got a great tempo. It's got a great like strummy feel to it. It's got even a little Easternness to it. That... And I, I love Ringo's uh, the little offbeats. It's a good, it's a good song. It's not profound, but maybe it is. Now, now that I think about it, it's only love. And that is all. Why do I feel the way I do? That's not a. That's not a. That's not that smart of an insight. But I like that song. I, I I ride for its only love. I'm glad we both do. So, what made you first want to get into music journalism? Oh, great question. So, I had written a million songs, 
recorded them on my little four track, distributed CDRs at school. Eventually got in a couple small, played a thousand coffee shops as a kid. It was kind of my life uh, without (laughs) any other prospects. I didn't go to college or any of that stuff. I had kind of an insular religious background. Okay. Um, A solid memory is coming to mind of reading the, um, I think I have a copy of it around here, but the, the big blue, do you remember the big blue Rolling Stone album guide? It it was, it's all text, no pictures, but it's, it's a sort of catalog. I don't know if it was everything Rolling Stone reviewed in the first place, but it's, it's, it's a pretty sizable guide to like the popular music canon. And I would read it until the spine came off. I just absorbing when the red hot chili peppers moved from one label to another, just like really, really burned into my mind. (laughs) So it was that and reading a lot of, um, Robert Crisco, he was a big influence. I was just, uh, and um, like Mark Richardson's uh, reviews of the uh, 2009 Beatles remasters on Pitchfork. I, I remember being in a computer class in uh, high school, just uh, secretly reading all those over and over and over and absorbing the syntax, absorbing how you could bring your own particular attitude to well-worn cultural artifacts and or take the abstract. And I remember thinking about this a lot, taking the abstract and making it, like turning music into words seemed, I, I hope this doesn't sound ridiculous, but it's, it seemed like a magical process. And that was always simmering. And as I got more seriously into, I had a band called Hall of Sunshine that it was the only uh, band I ever had that got a little bit of attention, like got a little side article in Pitchfork. And I'm like, oh my God. My first music journalism job was after, after doing it on the side, after collecting 150 bucks here and there, my first music journalism source of employment was Billboard, where I interned in 2018. And um, on top of writing the news about Demi Lovato or whatever um, stuff I had to do, I befriended my editor, Joe, one of my editors, who was a big classic rock fan. And he assigned me little things like interviewing Brian Wilson, which felt like a watershed at the moment, and Beatles-related stuff and just classic rock in general we bonded over that kind of idiom and uh once my my seasonal internship was up i um started freelancing for them started freelancing for a bunch of other publications and this goes beyond the parameters of your question but um it's kept snowballing and here i am a staff writer at grammy.com an editorial site run by the recording academy and did you ever see yourself winding up at grammy.com no, 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 no. I, I had first freelanced for them in uh, like 2019. And um, no, I know I all of this is completely foreign to me. Um, my the current the current state of things in my music journalism career, kind of where everything's just the way things are moving. I I still write about the Beatles every every once in a while. Try and do a in I, I I really hate to write things that everybody else is writing. Like it's going to be it's going to be a revolver time soon, and everyone's going to um, rehash the same stories of really revolutionized. Blah 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 blah. I want to write about how that remixing technology sort of had its genesis and get back applied to revolver. How that might revolutionize everything. We could separate the instruments in old classical recordings. We could separate the instruments in Louis Armstrong or Phil Spector recordings. I just think that could be a total watershed. So if I'm going to write something about Revolver, I want it to be about that and not 
re- rehashing the same story about uh, John Lennon wanting to be attached to ropes and swung around the microphone and stuff like that. <clears throat> so has your career in music journalism ever led you to a personal encounter with one of the Beatles? Nope, never met Paul Ringo. I have met a litany of Beatle children, though. I interviewed Julian recently, and I also saw Sean play at The Stone. Have you been to The Stone in NYC? Yeah, I actually went to go see Sean play. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, I think I... I I, I don't know. Everyone was masked, so I, I don't know if we were in the same room. But um, I was there with my friend Lydia, big jazz publicist. And um, I was hanging out with David Newgarden, a friend of mine, who uh, is Sean's publicist and Yoko's and Guided by Voices. But um, you can attest to this. He just steps on stage with a small ensemble. I don't know what to expect. You probably didn't know what to expect either. And I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be like some just some psych rock stuff he and his buddies cooked up. And at first I was like, okay, this is what it is. But then it started to really rip. Like those guys were great. The drummer was insane. The bassist was insane. The percussion, it was really, really cool. And uh, beyond that, and and I, I mentioned Sean just to kind of frame Julian, who I feel like doesn't get talked about as a serious artist enough. That last album, he, or the, the kind of comeback album he made called Jude is really great. And um, he's, he is of, I don't know if you've met, either of those guys, but they're of equal intellectual power and they are clearly Lennon's. That energy has completely, completely translated to just the, the, just the light in their eyes. I mean, Sean is more of a far out dude who's into, uh, <laughs> I, I'm struggling to remember, but like bugs and Crowley and uh, esoteric subjects. And Julian is more, grounded from my perspective but they both are equally sharp dudes and i've also met i've met danny sweet sweetest guy just over the phone and uh i've met zach over the phone and uh i haven't met any of paul's kids but um every time i can spend i can't stress this enough every time i get to spend time with a lennon is i wouldn't be doing anything else in the universe (laughs) so we definitely touched on this a bit before but how have the beatles influenced your personal life it's what i seek in people Uh, man my personal life they teach me to be so (laughs) are you into like post beatles george not not in his music necessarily but like just what kind of guy he was yeah you ever think about him because yeah i struggle with people who have a dryness or a a lack of humor or a lack of imagination or seem to be interested in just to have like a one or two track mind or just seem to be very uptight and incurious. I get the way I'm talking to you because we connect, I can just talk all day. I'm a very open person, but in, in these situations I get very quiet and sort of, <laughs> sort of morose because I, when I feel like there isn't a channel for the ways I relate to the world, which are chiefly music and humor, then I feel like I don't have a place. And not to make this a therapy session, but okay. So that, that that leads us to George. And even when his music was at its most, I don't want to say banal. That's, that's mean. At its most, at its most, I guess half-hearted because he was half-hearted at a certain point about the music industry for good reason, especially after God, after John passed away, like, he must have just like, 
get, get these freaks away. <laughs> um, I want, I just want a garden and I want to, um, re- not race. I don't think he raced cars, but he, uh, he was early into formula one and he, he loved gardening and formula one and he loved, what else did he love? He loved ukuleles. He loved the jukebox and star Wars. Did, was he into star Wars? Yeah. I mean, he loved star Wars. He just, <laughs> but tell me about that. He loved the, he loved the movie. He thought it was a great film and he really <laughs> loved how George Lucas explained the force because in George's eyes, he was like, oh, wow, this is a great way to explain religion and spirituality to people who maybe aren't open to hearing about that. Wow, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I know yeah. he considered himself like a closet Krishna in his words at that point. I think he uh, he felt like he went too far maybe with the Dark Horse period where he was really ramming it down people's throats when he himself was totally doing tons of blow and drinking tons of brandy and being a total hypocrite and philandering and all that stuff and maybe maybe the backlash from the critics really um struck a chord with him but it his sincerity as rob sheffield is one of my heroes mentioned on your podcast like the fact that i'm going on tangents here but i think that's the spirit of the uh the spirit of the outlet here or the format <laughs> remember when rob said or he, he mentioned that ravi shankar deigning to <laughs> study with this mop top this this who might have been conceived as a teeny bopper at that point when he was such a respected master of his craft in Hindustani classical music. But he noted George's sincerity. Rob, I, I think he absolutely hit the nail on the head with that. And George's, George was sincere for his whole life about the, about, and what's crazy is that if you know the movie help of course it, w- it was this silly caper that could not have been made today due to various insensitivities <laughs> about middle eastern people but um if that's if it, if it didn't have that conceit if that sitar wasn't in the on the set if it wasn't like this <laughs> about like some magic man some stereotypical magic man would george have ever gotten into um hari krishna into that particular strain of hinduism what, what do you think I don't know. It's like one of those small things that happen that really has a tremendous effect over the next couple of years. I mean, with George picking that sitar up, it really led to things like, you know, other bands doing it too, the Rolling Stones and Painted Black and... Bangladesh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. And it led to, as I said, Bangladesh to, to this, but by extension, this concern with what might've been known back then as the third world and the suffering of people in the so-called third world. And, and also the, as I mentioned, the marriage of the East and West, which dictated a lot of popular music. And also you go into stuff like third stream later on in the eighties and new age and Wyndham Hill and Paul Pauvu and God, if he hadn't picked up that, maybe he would have found it in some other context, but it not only that fortuitous meeting, I guess, that fortuitous finding changed everything. <laughs> and um, anyway, so it, anyway, he was very sincere and he, okay, so this is the, this is my, my main point. He drank in life, dude. He took the biggest bite out of the apple of life. Anybody I can name in history has ever done. I mean, he's, passing out ukuleles to his friends to have long jams in the night. Like when, when he passed away, people like 
Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty were like the quiet Beatle. I couldn't get him to shut up. He was the loudest, like funniest. I think, I think it was Liam or Noah Gallagher. Remember like being at a fireside with him and he brought over a couple of Heineken's and talked about guitars for an hour and just said, nice to meet you. Gotta go. Like I am so inspired by George, even when I don't really connect with like extra texture or whatever. I mean, I ride for extra texture. Let's, let's be real. But um, even when I don't connect with some of the more, uh, I'll use the term again, half-hearted works. I'm just inspired by who he was. He is who I aspire to be. Just you are using every second of this thing called life. Uh, sorry. I don't mean to quote Prince. Please edit that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he drank in every iota of life to the point where he's been dead for 20 years. And I feel like he lives in my house. He is such a presence. So is John. And I love that about him. And I've, again, I try, I tr- in, in certain situations, I try to embody John's, his, the way he speaks out, the way, the way he makes himself heard, even when his opinion is totally misguided. He is not afraid. Um, the way Paul can massage situations and glue disparate people together um, to, for, for a larger, in the service of a larger goal. The way Ringo is just thrilled to be there. I try and pull from the grab bag of, of personality traits and, and just things they do because the way they conducted their lives, I mean, there was, there was some damage and hurt and there's some darknesses, but they combined to make so many people happy and they, they lived their lives magnificently. And, and Paul and Ringo continue to. I think George said one time that he wants to be remembered as just a gardener who wrote a few good songs. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I remember him. I'm I'm thinking of him like when I think of George, I'm not thinking of Don't Bother Me or Holy and Northern Song or even While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I'm great songs, but that's really beside the point. I think of him I think of him when I'm tooling around in the yard. Um I think of him when I'm looking at the ukuleles in a music shop. I even even just the um the sentiment of the song because totally sums up everything I'm talking about. Just being blown away that you're in a body in the world, looking at the sky and looking at the ground and feeling the wind. I, I don't mean to get too gooey here, but this is, this is a very tender subject for me. And I think that's a great question. I, I think that's, that's the only way I can answer it. Do you have a favorite memory that's associated with the Beatles? So Brenna, I have to touch on Brenna real quick because I really appreciate you having me here um, and being receptive to me kind of, kind of um, <laughs> dropping hit like if like this is this can totally be Brenna's thing. I'm totally happy for it to be. But if you want a very loud and, and vociferous guest, if you happen to need one, I'll be here. Um, I, I mentioned Brenna because, well, I also want to say that her perspective is so fresh. You guys should go listen to my wife, Brenna Ehrlich's um, episode a few episodes ago. I don't know when this will run, but um, she came at it. She comes at the Beatles, not as I've said, like droning on about your childhood, but she came into it in her thirties, which I think is so cool and so fresh. And, and the way she's really fallen in love with them is so exciting to see. And I think she's the ultimate Beatles fan, even though she didn't grow up with them. I think that's, I think, I think you should get into them when you're 90, if you need to, but anyway, Brenna, I mentioned Brenna in the service of this question because she mentioned the Paul show and everything you need to know about that Paul show. Have you seen Paul? 
Yes. Yeah, I saw him at MetLife this past summer. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> we were both yeah. there. And uh, I wept I wept again and again. Uh, but again, just anybody listening, listen to Brenda describe it. What I will talk about is seeing Ringo recently at a Hard Rock Cafe in a, or the Hard Rock Museum in uh, Atlantic City. That's right. Very corny place, but we were, we were just grinning like idiots because it was like so goofy in there. And um, I, lo- I loved that show. I found it very moving. It, it also reminded me that, um, okay, this isn't like my ultimate build memory. I just want to go for the latest one. Because it, it, ta- it reminded me that I actually love all classic rock indiscriminately. Do you ever feel that way? Like, I don't, I don't hate anybody in the classic rock canon. I love The Doors. I love Steely Dan. I love The Eagles. I love... I love acts that people love to hate, but seeing Edgar Winter up there and uh guy from Average White Band and the guy from uh, Men at Work, these songs rip, dude. <laughs> like, Edgar Winter's Frankenstein is the jam. And it was music that some might denigrate as like county fair entertainment. Oh, they're wash-ups or something. But it's like, no, they're not. Heavens no. They they continue to perform a lot. Toto too. They They... They continue to perform alongside a Beatle, one of only two people in the universe to be that. And they get to make people happy. And these songs are great. I I ride for Average White Band. I, I ride for Toto. Um, Ringo looked incredible. He sounded incredible. He was he, His humor is darker than I remember. He's like, it shouldn't sound like, <laughs> you should be having fun. It shouldn't be torture. <laughs> and it was great. And um Another funny recent one was um, I'm covering a lot of events for the Recording Academy, and one was the band Coheed and Cambria doing a Q&A on stage. And uh, the drummer was talking about how in the studio, producer said, you're playing that part too perfectly. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you need to play it like Ringo. And what that meant was, I mean, not that Ringo is less than perfect. He's, I think he's the ultimate drummer. But what that meant in context was play it more loosely and more um, sleazily. Just kind of like throw your shoulders back and just give it a little more of a swing and a little more of like a trashiness and like a behind the beatness. Um, I thought that was beautiful. I think, man, they could have had so many other drummers, but he wouldn't have made them kind of lift off the ground. That's uh, another tangent, but I loved that Ringo show. I'm, I'm so moved that two of these guys still get to be here and that I got to see them uh, within the same year of my life and share and breathe the same air as them and um, just watch them bring this giddy joy to so many. So George has to be your favorite Beatle, right? No, it's John. Really? Yep. Um, I, uh, I oscillate depending on who I relate to. I'm, I relate to Paul a lot in the moment, especially in workplace situations, but John just lives at my core. That's, that's how I want to present myself to the world most of the time. Who's your favorite? So I'm the exact same way. I really like the phrase you use, like you oscillate, because I feel like I do the same thing. Like sometimes I'll feel like um, my favorite is Paul because I really love the way he writes songs and gets there early and stuff. But other times my favorite is John because just because of how cool I think it is that he's able to crack a joke at a moment's notice and, and make the whole room laugh. Yeah, don't don't you want to access the John energy when you're in a situation where you feel self-conscious or not quite yourself or like you can't speak your mind? Don't you want to just like shatter a glass in the middle of the party or something like that? Just 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 shake things up. 
I've been in I've been in situations at work where it's tense, like it might be Grammy season and everyone's just holding their breath and I'll just say something so outrageous. <laughs> it's just I'll just throw a non sequitur just to see how things shake up. And my and my connection to John really connects to um there there was a lot of my my dad and my dad's sister who is very much still with us and uh I'm very, very close with Brent Brent and I are very close to my Aunt Holly. Um they both had a lot of they had they had bad parents, I I'm just gonna say it. And and a lot of family trauma and mental illness and substance abuse and stuff like that and and just really rough childhoods and they and uh John's like howls of pain like in uh your blues and plastic on a band they that that got them through a lot of, of dark 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 childhood moments of just pure isolation and and uh, embarrassment and alienation and misery and that sort of rings through my family history that just John crying out and, but also, but I, that that's tempered with John being so sweet and committal. Like one, one of my favorite John tracks is the version of grow old with me with, with George Martin strings. I think that was on the John legend, uh, John legend, Jesus Christ. I've been, I've been at the Grammys too long. The, uh, the John <laughs> Lennon anthology. Yeah. Um, just, he was, I, I, I try and, um, you know, during painful moments, I, I try and access the the and also John hiding John in strawberry fields. He's the he's the outcast. Nobody, no one I think is in my tree. He's he's just sort of circling the wagon psychologically, for lack of a better term. He's 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 healing. He's rebuilding himself. He's he's communing with his own ineffable essence or something like that. So all sides of John, even. <laughs> Even even the polemical side of John, I guess the the sometime in New York City version where he's just being <laughs> so arrogant and, and uh, sloganeering and know it all. I don't know. I relate to that too sometimes. But anyway, so how about your favorite Beatles album? Great question. Um, I'm going to ride for Sgt. Pepper again because it's really? very fashionable, even though it's it's probably a revolver really like, but the, but what, what people miss about Sergeant Pepper, because you, you know, as Rob mentioned in dreaming the Beatles, which I've read 500 times and basically memorized, it was trumpeted as the greatest album of all time before anyone had heard it. And that kind of expectations when it's blown out of, like you hear from people who live during flower power, summer of love, like everybody had it playing. That's what they all say. And th- those sorts of, outsized expectations will inevitably lead to backlash like in the kill your idols um sst sonic youth black flag era where it was it was fashionable to to um burn burn the beatles as effigies you know london calling obviously um sergeant pepper was the first on the chopping block and um a lot of people i talked to even diehards would be like oh it's just candy coated bs you know it's I like Revolver. I like Rubber Soul. I like the White Album. Like Sgt. Pepper's my least favorite. What they're missing is, yeah, a lot of those songs are throwaways, but it's not about the songs themselves. It's about the show. It's it's presented as a concert, right? And what what is a concert? It's a cumulative effect. Um, fixing a Hole is not one of my favorite Beatles songs at all, but in context, I love it. I love how they're, I think Brenna framed it perfectly as like shaking apart, like this, <laughs> it's got this like anxious goofiness that's like that that's and she connects that spiritually to xdc which is probably her favorite band of all time 
That's what I love. I, I, I love the way it gains momentum all the way up to good morning, good morning. If you take good morning, good morning in isolation, it's a C tier John song in context, all that excitement's been building up to it. And every just like giant cymbal crash and Ringo just feels so good because you feel like you're reaching the finish line. And then like a day in the life, like the presence of a day in the life and within you, without you, and to a lesser extent, Lucy in the sky, that alone uh, shoots it to the top. But I digress. Um, I'm, I'm just totally reveling in the revolver box set, which every, everybody should hear. Um, just the sheer invention. I think Giles uh, compared it to uh, remixing like eight bands at once. <laughs> like the Memphis soul band and the, and the Raga band and everything. But I'm, I'm a revolver guy through and through, but I'm going to ride for pepper as well. Um, maybe that doesn't quite answer your question. It's funny how, have you noticed that rubber soul is really beloved? Yeah, I have noticed that. Yeah. I love rubber soul, but they hadn't quite honed their, editorial capability because they they had to, you've heard the stories about how they had to rush it out by christmas yeah yeah and i think you won't see me in another song maybe the word i don't remember it was you won't see me in some other song that they had to like bash out the night before they were, it was like crunch time and that led to i think i don't, I don't really like a th- about a fourth of the songs on on rubber soul and i agree with you completely yeah exactly like they they were under pressure and little little choices i don't really agree with like the fuzz guitar in um i'm looking through you which is a great song yeah, i yep. i i would have done it differently with that little tag and run for your life should have just been left off in the first like it's it's not up to it's fine i don't loathe it like other people but it's not up to par but then you have revolver and they had like what 300 hours of studio time they had time to they had time to edit they had time to curate and to really think about things. And that led to, you've heard that tax man outtake where they, they go, instead of Mr. Wilson, Mr. Heath, they go, have you got a little bit of money? Have you got a little bit of money? That's a yeah, terrible yeah. choice, but they were <laughs> smart and they changed it. So I just think they had more time to, I mean, Rubber Soul is beautiful. I mean, in my life, come on, it's sublime. I'm looking through you is wonderful. Um, what else? Uh, girl is one of Lennon's most majestic songs. It's got that beautiful exhaustedness that I love. I also hear that in, you see the Dylan poster behind you. I kind of equate girl with uh, Dylan's um, just like a woman, kind of this, this, this punch drunk love struck, like bittersweetness. That's just, I, both songs kind of heave and breathe and it just feels so deeply. You just feel both songs in your chest. But anyway, I, I love every Beatles record though. I don't love every song. Some people, like Dan Auerbach say they love every Beatles song and God love them. But I, that, that, that's hard for me, but yeah, it's, it's a revolver, but also I'm going to make another push for pepper because some other, some of your other guests might not. (laughs) So do you have a favorite fact about the Beatles that some people might not know already? Um, no, not really. I think I'm going to, I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to second, Rob Sheffield's comment that it's just the basic public facts about them. The fact that they existed at all. That's, that's the, that's the wildest thing. And um, another thing I, which um, is, is actually more pertinent to a past question, but I forgot to mention it 
is it was always ingrained in me by my very missed dad that what they okay okay this is actually a missing piece that i meant that i forgot to mention from going from like the beatles are for grandparents to like this is still so sharp and so far out and so perfect for this moment is that it was always ingrained in me that nobody had done these things before and i feel like that's kind of getting lost in beatles discourse for some reason nobody had done a backwards guitar solo before nobody had put a sitar on a pop record nobody had played those banjo chords nobody had written songs in a self-contained unit before this is actually this is actually kind of um uh relevant to your current question but <laughs> all the things they just arrogantly did that nobody had i mean people argue they'll say no the kinks see my friends actually had uh, that drone or whatever but 99% of the time it was completely new the the use the use of the moog on abbey road all kinds of things. It was all complete. Nobody had tried that before. And that is so freaking special. And that, that is kind of the skeleton key as to why they continue to be because doing something for the first time. Now that I think about it is, is golden. That's evergreen. That's walking on the moon for the first time or, or whatever, building the first, I don't know, um, computer system to, uh, <laughs> uh like, Turing or whatever to, to resonate with your line of work that 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 sticks you in history forever and it, it that's never dated um i'm I, I could phrase this more elegantly but uh i think you get my drift so what is it about the beatles that makes them so relevant still i mean why are we still remixing their albums in 2022 and writing reviews of their remixes yeah, all those reasons I mentioned, and also they had this weird, uncanny ability to write songs that weren't, and to present themselves in ways that weren't terribly era-specific. Phil Oakes wrote about Vietnam, as my friend James Toth likes to mention, <laughs> as, as kind of a uh, <laughs> an example of how things can just be lost to, uh, lost to time. Writing about very era-specific details instantly dates you of course and they didn't really do that they god can i talk about revolution for a second revolution is the ultimate song about the social justice obsessed identity obsessed uh moment right now and also the era you know how everyone's an activist today everyone's an armchair activist or drive-by activist whatever he could have wrote songs. He could have wrote revolution about how um, we all need to band together and change the world guys. You know, instead <laughs> it's a song about revolutions as you well know, it's, Oh, you, 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 you want, you want a contribution. Hmm. Um, can you sort, can you, can you sort out your own business please before you come asking for a donation <laughs> uh, or, um, you know, we're all working the message of that song. God, I, I think about this almost every day, it's literally, because I'm so inundated with, with the current moment, the current causes, how everybody needs to send money this way or that way to, to uh, edge us closer to a utopia or, or whatever people think. That's, that's a, he, okay, the message is we are all individually striving in our own lives to make a difference. Inviting your neighbor over for a beer. Um, mowing your neighbor's lawn um uh volunteering at the cat shelter or whatever we we all use the time we're 
the spare time we have in a hyper, I hate this word, but like a hyper capitalistic society. I hate when people talk about capitalism. It's the worst. Um, <laughs> we're all trying is basically what John is saying. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you coming to me, you know, raises questions about your own motives. And especially if it's couched in violence or destruction in John's word, then I'm not with it. That is such a beautiful song for right now. It's basically a song about Twitter. So anyway, they wrote a lot of songs like that. And they're, and they're couched in, your other guests might have said this before, but I guess universal might be the word. Universal themes, themes of childhood, of nostalgia, of longing, of anger, of uh, in John's case, suicidal ideation with your blues that captures a very dark moment um, of w- silliness. Like as Brennan mentioned, making songs with animal noises, like who who did that? Silliness of whimsy of, of just drinking in life. Basically. Um, these are not, these are not, these are not themes specific to 1968. They're themes of right now and a hundred years from now and a million years from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's something that's hard to find in other music. I mean, I'll listen to the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction about the, you know, they have lyrics about the man coming on the TV commercial, and it's like, <laughs> that's dated, you know? It's like... <laughs> yeah, it's the it's a, it's the the uh, podcast ad now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Morgan, what are you up to now? Have you been involved in any projects recently? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, as I may have mentioned, I'm really plugged into the New York jazz scene more more than ever. That's that's kind of my beat. I cover a lot of classic rock and a lot of Beatles and I, uh, and all kinds of stuff that pertains to my interests. But my work might steer me toward thrash metal. I might steer me toward, toward classical. I have to be constantly open to signals from all directions. And um, it's given me a wider appreciation of things I might thought were lame or passe as a kid and i've really come to realize that it's everybody has a place in this in this music world um from the from the edgar winners to the ringos um and beyond but i I, i'm just doing a lot of reporting on that i write for jazz times a lot i i've sort of picked up writing for title again little freelance outlets on top of my day job as far as major projects it's 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 stuff like that that might be a little um not over the heads i'm not over anybody's head i'm <laughs> but might be a little uh insular or esoteric for the average listener but just just a lot of goings on um in new york city clubs like village vanguard and players i think are really inspiring composers mighty musicians who are just kind of walking the earth and should be should be the pop stars of of uh I don't want to, I almost, I almost said something that was uh slightly uh, deleterious to my job title, but they should, they should be the pop giants, but they are sort of kept to the margins for whatever stupid reason. And I, I just continue to try to elevate them. I mean, I can name them all day from Rouge off top to Craig Tabor and to Miguel Zinon, just uh, musicians that blow my mind every day. So it's stuff like that. I, I want to write a book um regarding randy newman and his film composer family but i haven't had the time to i've been i've been sitting on this idea for like two years and i occasionally start watching films and writing a little legal pad but then i i invariably get distracted but that's a longer term goal 
and um, looking forward to whatever I read about Revolver and uh, AI demixing and and stuff like that. It's 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 really depends. I'm working on like 14 different things at a time. I I, I try and stay open to the moment more than um, be super goal oriented, but it's just a constant. Um, the Grammy season is here, so that's that's on my immediate horizon. Uh, quote unquote content to do with the show and whoever ends up on that nominations list. But I just try and take it day by day. So speaking of Revolver, what were your thoughts of the new remix? It's incredible. The uh, Eleanor Rigby, I think, is the greatest. Um, is is the most revelatory moment. Um, you can you can hear the the horse hair on the strings. It's 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 like the world is ending. This this Eleanor Rigby is going to destroy the universe. Or no one is also like the way I kind of frame it is instead of kind of receiving the flattened information that you're hearing a clavichord or a harpsichord or, or whatever is on for no one, you actually hear it resonate. You hear Paul's fingers hitting the hitting the, the key, which strikes a string, and you hear it resonate, and you hear it, it's it's any basically. I can't stress this enough. Anybody who just isn't really aware of the Giles Martin remix. Anybody who loves the Beatles, if you listen to this, you probably love the Beatles. If you have insofar not checked out these remixes, you will never return to the 2009 version or the <laughs> 90s version. Giles is doing the Lord's work and he has nailed it every single time. I, I am a cheerleader for every single one of these. Let it be White Album, Pepper, Abbey Road, now Revolver. You absolutely must. They're all on streaming with all the bonus tracks. Please dispose of the last version. It served its purpose, but you don't. You don't need to. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to hear the uh, all the instruments in one ear and all the vocals in the other ear. You're free now. He he did this perfectly beautiful, elegant job that I can't imagine anybody else doing better. Where it it's like true to the mono mixes that everybody loves to. Oh, you haven't heard Revolver and Mono before, but it's like that, but three dimensional. Dispose of the last version. <laughs> I hope he does the same with Rubber Soul, and I think you, I think, I think it'll all be remixed within a few years. And um, it it's, I know it was, it was a um, a a lodestar, a goal t- for them to um render the Beatles works as competitive on streaming with modern music, which doesn't mean brick walling. It doesn't mean like just (laughs) putting trap hats on them or something. It's, it's, it's highly respectful. And just the fact that it can sit on a playlist next to Kings of Leon or whatever, and not be quieter and deader that will open up. I mean, kids are discovering the Beatles every day, as Brenna mentioned, and this will just, help that it 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 adapts them to the modern era beautifully so i i can't regard giles highly enough i sit on youtube all day watching people like try and criticize him or try and get him on things but they all need to uh as i say go sit in the truck (laughs) one final question for you morgan and it's where do you see the beatles and their music in a hundred years from now um again I, I defer to Mr. Sheffield, who who wrote the brilliant Dreaming the Beatles, which everybody should read, about how after they folded the band, they're like, all right, don't pay attention to that anymore. We're serious solo artists. Like, just forget the, you know, the dream is over. All that stuff. 
it just kept swelling and swelling and swelling as as Rob wrote the the world said I think I disagree and just kept kept it rolling and rolling and rolling into the 80s when they seemed as he says as he writes rather they seemed more more broken up more dead I guess than they do now like the, there was phony Beatlemania's bit in the dust they they swelled into the 90s and had that renaissance with the anthology and then with the with the love show and the and the, re, the 2009 remasters now these remixes it's it's going to just continue building and building and building and building to to answer your question there's there's no especially with again being able to compete and be able to reach kids ears more cleanly and satisfyingly there's honestly no telling man and being on the same planet as the beatles is um I just it just um it gives me pause i it kind of that's kind of a, a concept in my life that transcends words well morgan thank you so much for coming on the podcast that was a fantastic conversation anytime i hope i didn't wear you out too much thank you so much for doing this podcast and for uh and for letting me get to know you a bit and for um just continuing to bear the flint because there's there's um there's kind of a contingent of Beatles fans that are pretty negative and more interested in uh, tearing things down or, or venerating the, the the past or whatever, or just keeping it like a insular world of white 65 year old men. Everybody of every background, every gender expression, whatever, everybody, there is room for everybody in this world. And it just, it, benefits everybody it, it, it is nourishing in a mutual sense for for the gates to be shattered I, I i bang on about this all the time regarding jazz that it again it doesn't need to be this little sneery snooty world but everybody should be able to go check out incredible jazz all the time economically or uh, um not letting critics get you down etc cetera, etc cetera. that applies to the beatles as well there is room for everybody and just keep at it, man. Keep, keep getting everybody you possibly can as many divergent voices as possible. And just keep, keep mowing down that uh, old paradigm of what Giles calls the socks and sandals club. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. To find out more about Morgan Enos and his work, check out all the links included in the podcast description. And if you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social medias. As always, I'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Bye.